Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome to this bonus episode of the Taking Off the Mask podcast. Listen, um, as you know, I'm an educator at heart, and education is a big part of my life and about my journey, um, and it's a big part of what we do in the Million Mask movement and in these podcasts. Today's bonus episode is from High Tech High, which is a school system in San Diego. The High Tech High Unboxed podcast offers stories of learning in and out of school and interviews teachers, students, and school leaders. Um, Topics range from what it's like to do project-based learning um, to expert advice on continuous improvement in education to strategies for ensuring that every single person in the building is able to achieve their greatest potential. And the guest you're going to hear from is Enrique Chicle Lugo. He is now the dean at High Tech High Chula Vista. One of the quotes you'll hear in this episode is when students came to him and said, hey, we don't dress like that here. And I hope that you enjoy that part of the episode as much as even more how he talks about students finding their way of being able to fit into predominantly white learning spaces. Him as a Latino educator coming into a space and really finding his own voice, finding his own uniqueness. It's all about the mask. It's all about who we show up as, who we feel people will accept us, how we be able to be more of our full authentic selves. And I'm really excited to connect with him. I'm going to be presenting at the Project-Based Learning Academy in San Diego, and I'm hoping to be able to meet in person. So I hope you enjoyed today's bonus episode. It's the first time we've done this. Um, please stay in touch. If you know of another podcast that we should be thinking about listening to um, and that, that connects to our work, we look forward to hearing from you. Enjoy today's episode of High Tech High Unboxed. Where did you see yourself in relation to what you were learning academically in school did you like see yourself in it oh hell no man are you kidding me this is high tech high unboxed i'm alec Patton, and i'm jean katubai teach seventh grade humanities at high tech middle chula vista and we'll let today's guest introduce himself my name is enrique lugo i am also known as chicle that is my artist name I am a father of two young human beings, a 11-year-old boy and a nine-year-old young lady. I was born and raised in Paradise Hills, which is in the southeast region of San Diego. It's a small working class community. And over the past four years, we've been doing a lot of work with community cleanups and entrepreneurial endeavors where we opened a coffee shop and then in the middle of the pandemic that we're in we had to close the doors but now are working to reinvent that space and create something new there. Chicle is also one of the owners of La Golondrina, a shop in San Diego's Barrio Logan where local artists sell their work and he sells his own work online. I have a big cartel um, shop chicle79.bigcartel.com and lest we forget, he co-hosts a couple of podcasts of his own. I participate in one that has been like going for two years and I kind of joined it um, and then was on there regularly, which is called the Emo Brown podcast. And then I also participate in one that's called Dalegas Confidentials. Dalegas is like a, a sane kind of slang for kind of like go for it. It's with a radio DJ. Beto Perez, and then a, a middle school, actually elementary school counselor who is from Logan Heights. Like he 
was part of the gang and then through education like kind of changed. So Chicle's got a lot going on. He's also just built himself a screen printing studio in his backyard. Oh yeah, and there's one other thing he does. I have been a part of High Tech High for about eight years as a classroom teacher and then transitioned into administration as a dean of students, uh, assistant principal. And I just completed one year of that and about to embark on my second. We talked to Chicle about how he got to where he is today, about how he's navigated white spaces since he was a kid, and what a white space is in the first place, and about what it's been like to go from being an art teacher to being in charge of discipline for an entire school, especially right now. Let's get into it. Where'd you go to school? I actually got bussed out of the neighborhood for school. There was a magnet program for bilingual education. And since junior high, um, I went to school up in Point Loma, I went to Korea junior high, um, and then Point Loma High School. And so that was, was that English, English Spanish? Yeah, it was really cool because as a native Spanish speaker, you know, that was my first language. Uh, school was a little bit easier for me because the classes were in Spanish. And so at home, you were mostly speaking Spanish? Yeah. I mean, to this day, you know, when we go over and visit mo my mom and dad, it's all Spanish all the time. And, you know, at home, I don't speak Spanish with my own kids as much as I should. Till my mom's always giving me a hard time about that. Why do you think you should? Uh, because I have a lot of family that doesn't speak English. And there's going to be a point where my kids can't communicate with their own family anymore. And that's important to me. And, you know, living on the border, like, it's just a different experience when you can communicate with almost everyone. So you're getting bussed out to this school. And so what was it like? Was that weird going to school in Point Loma? I didn't really think anything of it at the time. My si So my sister's 10 years older than me, and she had done it. You know, so I think a part of me was like, all right, cool. Like, it's what we do. And then because of the magnet program, there was a, a good dozen of us from the same school. We had been in classes together since first grade, some of us going back to kindergarten. So there was a big group of us that would get on the bus. Like, we were the first stop and we'd all get on at the same time. So I think that helped, you know, like I wasn't on my own or I wasn't like trying to find new friends, like I already came with kids that I had grown up with. And it's actually, it's interesting because not until more recently have I really thought about that experience and how it set me up for a more positive experience in college and, and just life after high school, because, you know, I got to know kids from different ethnicities, like not just Latino or Filipino or Black. You know, I was meeting kids who were Portuguese. I was meeting kids who, you know, were like, wealthy and I didn't think much of it but I was introduced to different genres of music you know and I think that's something that I value so much now where did you see yourself in relation to what you were learning academically in school did you like see yourself in it or did you feel like you were learning oh, about hell no like man are you kidding me the most memorable lesson at the time was like we dissected a cat you know, so I learned anatomy. I'll be honest, like, I don't think I ever learned anything that made me feel like, oh, shit, like, I see myself, you know. I think what helped me out in high school was that we had a screen printing class. Uh, so from sophomore year through senior year, like, I was always in there. I, I was never really, like, academic 
you know, I think I always did well in school or, or well enough to be, you know, out of trouble and, and had a good GPA or, but I was like all about art, graffiti and soccer. Like that's where I saw myself. I saw myself in my friends and the music we were listening to, going to concerts in Tijuana, getting into the mosh pit. You know, I, I never really thought about the future or, you know, my education. So why college then? College because my sister went to college. So my sister, you know, she was also bust out. She went to Point Loma. The one who's 10 years older, you were saying, right? Yeah. And she she actually had a counselor who noticed her. You know, my sister was going to go to fashion school. And I remember we went and took a tour in downtown San Diego. Like I saw a room full of sewing machines. Like that's what she was going to do. And then when her counselor found out, she's like, no way. You know, because my sister's like, like she's the academic in our family. So she had like a really high GPA, you know, and, and so this counselor takes her to USD. The application deadline has already passed. Um, my sister's not only admitted, but she's offered a full ride. You know, and from that point on, my parents would always tell me, you know, if your sister could do it without any help, you have to do it. You know, and then that became my, my sister's kind of message to me, too, of, you know, you got to do it. You got to do it. You know, and again, like soccer, art, that was my thing. I wasn't really thinking college, but my sister kept pushing me. And being a rebellious teenager, I started looking at schools that had good soccer programs because I was pretty good at the time. I wouldn't say good enough to go to the next level, but I got into Cal Poly, which at the time was in the top 25 of the nation. Wow. And so I went out there, I tried out, made it to the final cut, was invited to come back in the spring, but I didn't go any further than that. So that was like college was because my mom and sister told me I had to, and it was also like a ticket away from home, you know, that that would be okay with my parents. Sounds like you had some strong women in your life, huh? Yes, absolutely. And my sister's like, she's instilled, like, she's like a second mom to me. It's that eldest daughter of immigrant parent trope for sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, and my mom will tell me stories of like when I was of age to go to preschool, that my sister found out where there was a preschool that she could take me to. She already had that spirit of, you know, we need education. Mm. You know, even though like she wasn't seeing herself in college and I'll tell you, like my grandmother, when my sister told them she was going to go to college, my grandma told her, like, what do you mean? That's not the place for you. Like, you need to learn how to cook and clean. And so, like, our family still has, like, a lot of those old school values. You know, luckily, my parents didn't, you know, and they encouraged my sister to go and myself to go. And, you know, so definitely blessed to have a sister that, you know, had that counselor. That counselor is the one that changed it for us. Because who knows, like if my sister had gone to fashion school, who knows what, what the expectation would have been for me. That's kind of amazing that you can pin it to like one moment, right? Right. And like that's yeah. kind of like where it pivoted. I mean, I feel like that's a lot of things when you really think about it, right? When you take the Absolutely. time to really like sort through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, in thinking about public education, you know, Point Loma, even back then was one of the bigger schools in San Diego. You know, mm -hmm. so for someone to to notice a student like my sister, you know, that in and of itself is already like magical. 
you know, and that that person would then take the time to drive my sister in person, you know, get her to do all this stuff, like not only life changing, but for generations, like the impact that that has had on our family is, is tremendous because my sister was the first in our family on both sides to do it, you know, and then even like family friends that we grew up with saw her as, as like the role model. And now like a, a lot of us ended up in college. You know, and, and even now the younger generations are, are starting to pursue education. And it's pretty neat, you know, that, that she was kind of like the catalyst for all of that. We need to, we need to drop your sister's name. What is her name? <laughs> yeah. So her original name is Veronica Lugo Mendivi, um, but now her, her married name is Veronica McKnight. And, I, and I'll just, bra- just to brag a little bit more about her. So she graduated, you know, with honors high school and then graduated with honors from USD as well. You know, so again, like she, she's always had that spirit, you know, and I don't know, I'm just really proud of her and and now grateful that she did all of that because of where I get to sit. You know, I'm a freaking dean of students at High Tech High International, like the last place if we interviewed my 17 year old self, like there's absolutely no way that would be what I would be doing at 41. So Chicla's sister paved the way for him to get into college. But getting into college is one thing. Fitting into college is a whole other thing. And the school where Chicla went, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, was a culture shock. Like I think San Diego is pretty conservative, but it's not as visible as when you hit a small community like San Luis Obispo. You know, and it's the college town and then the folks who like live there and then like it's a big agriculture school you know so you have a lot of hardcore you know conservative folks from out in the the you know farms and ranches and you know I was meeting people that were saying like I've never seen a black person in person you know like this is my first time we're like what like where'd you come from you know and then you realize like the whole world is not San Diego you know like some folks live in very you know, unique environments that I, at the time I couldn't even imagine. Like, I thought that was the wildest thing anyone could ever say. But Chicle's time at Point Loma High School had given him a secret weapon, punk rock. When I first arrived at Cal Poly, music was a way that I connected with people that I probably wouldn't have connected with otherwise, you know. What was some of that music that you were introduced to? I'm curious. So I grew up in the, the 90s. You know, so a lot of the, well, in Point Loma, a lot of those kids were listening to, you know, bands like Pennywise and Unwritten Law and uh, Sublime, you know, No Effects, which at the time they were all kind of coming up, you know, in junior high, like Stone Temple Pilots and Peril Jam, you know, like they were playing in San Diego all the time. And this is before they were like really big. And kids would come into school talking about these bands. And I was like, like, who is that? You know, I've never heard that. Because out here in Paradise Hills, we were mostly listening to, you know, West Coast gangster rap. And, you know, for me growing up with a Mexican family, like traditional Mexican music, Norteño, Rancheras, like all the classics. And then oldies. Um, And then I went to Point Loma and all of a sudden I had like a variety of music. And then once I got into that, I remember like my senior year in high school, two of my friends started sharing CDs like, you know, Pink Floyd and, you know, older punk and Jeff Beck, like things that like 
you know, or artists that I would have never heard probably until much later. But then arriving at Cal Poly, suddenly, you know, what people were talking about, I knew, I knew what they were talking about and I was into it. So it created a lot of, you know, cool experiences. So it kind of sounds like you got like an early crash course in whiteness studies a little bit. <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's almost like I knew enough to survive, although I didn't realize that, you know, and, and I think it's interesting because, you know, I was in San Luis Obispo as an 18 year old wearing Dickies and Chucks and had a shaved head. And so I looked a certain way. That I think what is it's kind of embarrassing to share that because I think in in many ways I was tokenized, you know, like I was I was that kid who like made it, you know. But then I, I started to see some of the ugly sides of our society as I started to grow up and and evolve within my my major and, and meeting with my advisor and you know, there's comments that people make that kind of let you know where people stand in terms of you know, who you are and your identity. Like what? You know, so I, in my major, we were all assigned a staff advisor, um, a person who was supposed to support you, right, and guide you and help you when you have questions. Yeah. And what were you majoring in? Uh, my major was graphic communication. Uh, so everything that has to do with like printing and, you know, like the step after graphic design. So I got a, a little bit of graphic design and then I learned everything about printing presses and paper and inks. This advisor, though, you know, my freshman year, I was seeing how other majors had almost like a sequence of, you know, your first quarter, you should take these courses. Your second quarter, you should take these, like like a little roadmap. And for us, we had like this really, to me at the time, it was like a really complicated chart that had bubbles all over the sheet and then arrows pointing in different directions. So it was like a pick your own adventure, but there was no clear, like, follow this course, you know? Um, so I went in and, and asked, like, hey, you know, um, I need some help picking my classes for next semester. He said, well, if, you know, don't come back until you have a plan. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Like, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> and in, in more conversations, like, it turned into, like, you know, one day, Enrique, you're just going to be another taxpayer. So, like, it is what it is. Mm. And I was like, man, like, who is this man? And, like, why is he treating me this way? Because I had other friends that would go to him, you know, and they'd get advice. Were your other friends white? Of course. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know what the makeup is now of Cal Poly, but I would, in my major, there was three Latinos at the time, you know, out mm -hmm. of, you know, a couple hundred and in the school, like it definitely felt like there was 50 of us, you know, or people mm -hmm. that looked like me at least or had a similar background, you know. And, and I, I didn't think much of it other than like this guy's a, a bad word. Can I say bad words on here? Yeah, you can say bad words. Go for it. Okay, cool. I'm not going to. I just want to make sure. But, you know, like I, I, I think that was the first time I felt like an outsider and it was mm -hmm. fine. Because I think, again, going back to music, like I had created enough relationships around me that helped me move forward and ultimately graduate and get out of there. But always tapping into the, the working class roots and working in the cafeteria and the dishwasher, you know, area. And like to me, those jobs were fun, you know, which is funny because when I suggest that to our students now who are graduating, 
they're like, no way. Like I can never do that. You know, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. but those are the best jobs. You can meet real people there, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I don't know. I had a good time. Next, Chicle moved back to San Diego. When I graduated college, I did AmeriCorps Vista for two years. So like a full-time volunteer. And I was working at the Barrio Logan uh, College Institute, which is an after-school program for youth from the Logan Heights area. And that's where I kind of got curious about education. And that's where I first heard about High Tech High. And it's like in 2003 and 2004. But then I met my wife and I started working in like a small print shop here in town. Um, And then it would be like another 10 years before I actually started pursuing jobs in education or working with youth because when Barrio Logan started to become an art kind of hub and it started to change, um, we did a program called School of Guerrilla Arts where we would teach kids how to DJ, how to do stencil art, how to screen print. And that was the first time that I shared like screen printing with kids and to see the excitement in their faces when they would pull the squeegee and see that like somehow there was ink on a sticker and it was theirs to keep. And, you know, like how exciting that was. I was like, dang, like I want to do this. You know, so I started to look for jobs with youth and then with after school programs and Um, That's when I got invited to do like screen printing with a ninth grade class. And that's really what got me the the job as academic coach um, was I did something with a kid that folks had been struggling with, you know, and the kid and I connected and, you know, like the kid who stuck around to the end and helped me carry all my stuff out to the car. And it was like really cool. And I didn't think anything of it, but, you know, that opened the door and I saw the listing for academic coach at High Tech High. I did that for a semester and then ended up in Chula Vista um, as an art teacher. I'm wondering how that experience was for you and like how, because, you know, we we were academic coaches at different times, essentially in a different high tech high. So I'm wondering like how that that was for you. Yeah. I mean, I had an amazing experience. I'll be honest, like when I came in, I didn't realize I'd be working with uh, students that had specific needs and, and different profiles like. I thought academic coach, like a mentor, like, you know, a guide. And then when I came in and I was interviewed and they're like, you know, uh, you need to help in math and chemistry. I was like, what? Like I, and I told them like, you know, I don't think I'm the guy for this. Like, no, no, no. Like, you're going to be great. Like, don't worry about it. Like you'll learn with them. And sure enough, I did. But I think academic coaches make a lot of high tech, high work. They're the ones who are able to get those kids who are being integrated to actually integrate and participate and be successful. And so for me, that was really exciting because I was a little older already. You know, I I think my mentality and perspective on life was, was very different from when I was working at the after school program, you know, when I was 22, 23, Um, I was now a father, you know, I was 30 years old. And and to me, being able to connect with the kids that I worked with and, you know, to talk to them about their future and why things were important, like, it, it just seems so rewarding, you know, even though academic coaches don't make a whole lot of money, there's no benefits, you're doing all the heavy lifting and the reward is in the connections that you make with the students. 
But I, I think for me, because I never saw education as part of my future, like I think I had so much more to learn about being an educator. And as an academic coach, I was successful, but I wasn't lesson planning. I wasn't, you know, doing all these things that I, I struggled with in my first, you know, first couple of years. But I knew how to like set things up for all kids to be successful. You know, or I, I should say I had a better idea of how to do that. Because I feel like when you come in fresh and suddenly you're not only designing a, a project, but you're designing your lesson plans and, you know, your day to day and you got to scaffold it for, you know, four different profiles in your class. Like that's really hard. And I think I came in already with like a little bit of a, a know-how or how to approach it. And I, I always talk about that. I just miss being able to be like, hey, like you look like you're having a, a rough day today. Like, do you want to go take a walk right now? Yeah. <laughs> Where, when you're yeah. when you're the general ed teacher, you can't do that, you yeah, know? And like no. on those walks, you know, on those brain breaks, walking out and just like having a minute, because especially in Chula Vista, it's like such a beautiful campus, oh, you know? Yeah. So like I, I utilize that like, like in the back where they have like all the flowers that bloom like between yeah. January and, and March. Like that would be it's my kicking spot with the kids. Like, yo, let's go, you know? And which, I, I which, miss that. Which school were you at? At Chula Vista, at the middle school. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, like you said, there's just so many opportunities to, to connect and, and get to know them. And I feel like, I mean, probably like the most valuable piece is just like listening to them, you know, and I miss, I, I do miss that because even now in my role now is is so different and so much harder to connect with kids for me now as, as a Dean of students. And I think in large part because of the title, you know, and then I moved mm. to a new school. So I'm also kind of just establishing myself and building a relationship with the whole community that it was kind of like a, a rude awakening for me. I went from a campus where I was already kind of known to now I'm the new guy and, and you're the dean. So the kids already have like a little bit of a, a reaction to that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but so I've been trying to pull back into some of my old academic coach, you know, strategies of, you know, talking to kids, going for a walk. And that's, that's really interesting because I hadn't even thought of it that way. Chico, you, you used a phrase, um, you said like academic coaches are the people who help the kids who are integrating to integrate. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, like we don't pull kids out of their class, right? Like we have our, our kids who, you know, have different learning profiles, different needs, different modalities. And, and I think the academic coaches are the ones who a lot of times are the ones facilitating the experience for those students that need that support or that extra yeah. support that's very direct you know but I, I think it's also what I loved about the position it wasn't you know I had my students that I had to work with and then I had all the other students that I could also work with you know and so I think that's where the position is so crucial because you're also connecting to kids that for me you know like when I did my interview I came in in my cuff jeans, boots, and a flannel shirt, you know, and one of the boys that I ended up working a lot with told me like, hey man, like no one dresses like that here. And he didn't, he didn't mean it in a bad way. Like he just meant to like, 
like I see you and thank you for being here. You know, and, and so I think like just being able to help a kid like that integrate to a school that, you know, high tech high is, is beautiful, it's wonderful. Like we're trying to pull kids from all over, like create this melting pot so that they, you know, almost like the society we want to see, right? Like I believe all of that. But I think when you're coming from certain parts of town, like pretty rough neighborhoods and tough places to grow up, it's not that simple. You know, it's not that easy to just open up to everyone and, and be who you are. So I think for me, like I, I saw part of my role in just giving kids that access that I once experienced, you know, and, and helping them see that they bring a lot to the table too that will help them connect with others. Would you describe High Tech High as like a pretty white space? Yes. Me too. It, it is what it is, right? Like up until very recently, mo- the majority of leadership at our school was white, right? I think that's starting to change. In particular, we have an a African-American CEO now. There's more folks of color in different positions. But I, I think I would absolutely say, yes, it's, it's a white space because when I talk to some of our students, that's the first thing they tell me, you know, like people don't care. We're at a white school. Like nobody cares. Like I always say something, nobody does anything. And that always has stricken a chord with me of, I disagree that nobody cares, but then what is happening or not happening to allow you to believe that, right? And so. To me, I think that's a part of it. And, and, and like not hesitating to call things for what they are. Like it, it's not a bad thing to say it. Like it, it just is that way. And it's not a positive or a negative necessarily, but clearly there's work to be done. And, and how do we make it just a space where all are welcome, all feel you know safe and, and seen and heard? So I think there's a lot of work to be done there. And I feel like lately... It's a conversation that I want to embrace more openly and, you know, allow myself to make mistakes. And it's okay. Like, we have to do that. If things are going to change, like, we got to do something, you know, because if we don't, then we're accepting what what is already. Other than, like, white leadership, what makes a place, like, feel white? I think, like, speaking from this student um, specifically, it was because... Anytime that she had brought up race issues, it had always been brushed off, Mm. you know, and I think I may have been one of the first folks to actually engage her, but even I fell short of, of her expectation. And so that's a student that I continue to work with to try to build that community and trust and, and also to learn from, from her, what can we do? Like, what should we be doing? Like, what are the conversations we need to have? You know, because I, I don't think it's a visual thing only. I think it's also like in how we have handled things in the past and the way things have been done. And it's a bigger thing than high tech high, right? Like it's not a high tech high problem. It's like a, a societal problem. And I think the more that we've talked about it in, in the past few years, like I think the more that change is gradually happening, you know, and I think most importantly, modeling these conversations for our students right like our students should be seeing that we are talking about this this is important this is something that we're committed to and so i've I've really tried to be really intentional that when i have these conversations with kids i i always use that language of you know i'm committed to this we need to do this multiple times not like a one-time 
meeting and that's it. Like we need to continue this conversation. It's, it's complicated, but we got to get in there. Gene, did you, did you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm also like high tech, high born and bred as an educator. Um, started out as an academic coach, and this is kind of just how I taught. I learned to be a teacher, and in terms of thinking about, because I agree with you, like I I feel that high tech high is not just a little bit of a white space. I feel like it is really, really is a white space. And the way for me anyway, from like my own perspective, I feel that I have to kind of like straighten up a little bit. You know what I mean? Like I need to um, talk a certain way. I have to wear certain things. And I can't really point to like when I internalized that, but I for sure, I always feel like that, except when I'm at Chula Vista. And so kind of, I guess, a testament to like the community that we've built there in terms of feeling like we are accepting and celebratory of real authentic diversity. Because I, and I also feel like part of like white spaces too is like, and I'm just processing this out loud right now, it kind of feels like, you know, when people have like an inside joke going on and then you, you, you sense that there is an inside joke going on and you kind of like name it and they're like, what are you talking about? That's how it feels like when you're in a white space, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. What do you think, Alec? I mean, I think like, like if someone was like, hey, tell me about High Tech High, I wouldn't be like, it's super white. That wouldn't be like my immediate like thing. Whereas I think that probably would be like some students. One of the first things that they would tell at least some people they were talking to. But yeah, it's also just like weird because it's like I obviously feel pretty at ease in white spaces. So it doesn't it just doesn't register, I think, in the same way. Kind of backing up, Chickley, do you mind? Because I'm wondering, like, what are your like on paper responsibilities as dean of students? Um, I mean, essentially, it is like discipline, you know, and school culture, school, like maintaining the safety and integrity of the school. I I you know, jump in with attendance and like the day-to-day kind of making sure that students are in school, in class, doing well and not doing anything that they shouldn't be. With with no disrespect to law enforcement, my first week as a dean of students felt like I got a good sense of what a cop feels like when they interact with the general population or, you know, communities. Um, because immediately like kids had a reaction to me that was not positive, you know, like the cursing under their breath, giving me attitude. And I was like, whoa, like what the heck, you know? And it really pushed my thinking of, okay, the work that I need to do to change the perspective of students and my role, because it's not me personally, like they don't even know me. Like all they know is I'm the, the guy that could get them in trouble the guy that suspends or does those things. I I like what I do, but I also am trying to approach it from a different perspective of like being preemptive and proactive and trying to do things to build community so that, you know, the whole idea of restorative justice and restorative practices, I think only works when you have something established, right? You have the community, something happens, the community takes care of it. And I think a lot of the examples I've seen of that type of work is where there's nothing established. 
something happens, and now let's circle up and talk about it. At the end of that circle, like we're all good. And from what I hear from the students, like it's a game, right? Like I'm going to do something. Let's sit in a circle. I'll apologize, and then we all walk away as friends. Um, so it's, it's not real. You know, and so I think I came into this role already with that in mind of, you know, how do I treat the students and interact with them in a way where hopefully they can trust me with time, but also know that, like, we know they're going through stuff and we're here to support them. We're not here to, you know, harm them or push them out, but rather if if I know you have a substance abuse problem, like, like let's talk about that and let's get you the support you need. And, you know, how do I work with your family too? And um, so I think from that perspective, I see a lot of the, the stuff that's happening throughout the country of defund the police. And a lot of folks get caught up in the language and think like getting rid of police entirely is what everybody's trying to do. But I see it as more like scaling back on police work and incorporating other folks who are trained for like social workers who can work with someone that's in a crisis you know, mental health professionals that can help someone, you know, de-escalate a, a situation where they may be attempting to harm themselves, like like things that some police officers may be able to do, but most of them are trained for, you know, a different type of interaction that involves force and violence. And so I think in my role, I feel like there's a lot of adults that feel like punishment and discipline has to be at the forefront of everything we do and and not so much the relationship building and, you know, compassion and understanding of what a student is facing. So I I see a lot of parallels in, in that work and just, again, like trying to reset and reinvent what people, um, understand my role to be. I feel like that's probably a good note. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Jigley. Thank you. Thank you both. High Tech High Unboxed is written and edited by me, Alec Patton. And this episode is co-hosted by the one and only Gene Katubai. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. I strongly recommend that you follow Chigley on Instagram. You can find them there at at Chikle79. That's at C-H-I-K-L-E-7-9. You can also hear Chikle on the podcast he co-hosts, Dalegas Confidential and Emo Brown. You can find all the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening.